The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Radio Reversal is broadcast live on Brisbane Community Radio Station 4ZZZ, located on unceded Jagara and Turrbal country. If this podcast jumps about a bit at times, that's because we have edited the broadcast to remove music, news, sponsorship notices, and other features of a live radio show. To hear the full version of the show, you can access on demand and streaming at 4ZZZ.org.au. Radio Reversal is a show subjecting aspects of everyday life to political, theoretical, philosophical, irreverent and warm-hearted analysis, produced by a diverse and fluid collective of awesome folks. For more info, find us on Twitter at Radio Reversal or Facebook.com slash Radio Reversal. We acknowledge the traditional owners of this country, the Turrbal people to the north of the river and the Yagara and Ugarabal people to the south of the river and their elders past, present and future. Sovereignty was never ceded. Mutual, 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 This is the mutual broadcasting system. As radio gets called everything from gag to gadget, but fate is to make radio a power in a world of peace and war. And the show you are listening to today is Radio Reversal. Today on the show we are going to be talking a lot about political morality and social choice. Musing on the philosophical content of some kind of a broader political economic critique. This is very much in the spirit of Radio Reversal. Good morning, Zedheads. You are tuned to Radio Reversal here on 4ZZZ. Uh, and we're joined in the studio by a very special guest. We're very stoked to be joined by Dr. Stephanie Fischel, all the way from the University of Alabama. How are you doing, Stephanie? I'm doing great. Yeah, thank good. you. <laughs> um, what are we going to be talking about on the show today? Well, we've been doing a few shows over the last few months that have drawn really heavily on emotional geographies and effect theory. Um, we've been talking a lot about how we can link embodied experiences and ways of knowing with politics and, and these kinds of ideas of embodied politics. We've been talking about leaky bodies and the many and varied ways the borders and boundaries of our bodies are not what they what we think they are. And then the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot about technology, automation, AI and cyborgs and how these things are also blurring the boundaries of the body in new and interesting ways. Mm. So today, with the help of Steph, we're going to interrogate this link between bodies and the idea of the state and, of course, bodies and colonialism because that's obviously um, the context in which we find ourselves here. Um, Stephanie has just written a book called The Microbial State, uh, Global Thriving in the Body Politic, so we'll be talking through that today. She's an it's assistant. It's a great title. It's such a great mm. title. Yeah. Pretty sexy, right? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> love it. <laughs> love it. Um, she's an assistant professor in the Department of Gender and Race Studies at the University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa, here in a fellowship with Griffith University Centre for Social and Cultural Research. Tuscaloosa is also a great name. Right? <laughs> it's, a, it's a native name. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Cool. So we're yeah, going to be talking about this idea of the body politic, and I think, I guess the way I've been thinking about the show is putting the body back into the idea of the body politic. And you're, of course, listening to Radio Reversal. I'm Joe in the studio with Anna, Natalie and Stephanie, our guests today. Um, and we're talking about Stephanie's uh, new book, which is called The Microbial State. Um, hang on, what's the subtitle again? Global Thriving Glo- and the Body Politic? Yeah, yes. there we go. <laughs> Um, so we might move to talking a bit more about that book. Um, Steph, if you're up for it. I'm ready. <laughs> I yeah. assume you're up for it, having written <laughs> it. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, tell us a bit about the book and how it came to be and um, what, what it's about. 
Well, I guess we could start with the title since we talked about it's interesting when you write a book, you never really get the title you started with. Mm. So totally. That was a two or three year long process of working with a bunch of different working titles and having that one at the very end. Mm. So if, if you write a book, be prepared, have yeah. a provisional <laughs> title and know that your editor will probably tell you to do something else at the Now I'm curious. Night. I want to know the title that you originally wanted. Uh, it was New Metaphors for Global Thriving. Mm. Mm. Okay. Not bad either. Yeah. Um, <laughs> was, yeah. But I, it, it's not searchable enough, right? You kind of want something that uh. you, can't har- you can't bake it into the book. It has to be something that people would want to pick up and read mm. and then I mean if you have a chance you can search the title and look at it on the either the press site or Amazon I really lucked out um, mm. and got some really beautiful artwork from mm. a paper cut artist named Rogan Brown who's mm. currently right now in France so you can check out his work too Rogan Brown um, he was very generous and gave mm. me the rights to it um, so it's, a, in fact, quite a stunning cover as mm. well, though that doesn't translate on radio. <laughs> <laughs> we can put a link on our Facebook page. <laughs> um, but can you tell us, like, what, what got you started thinking about this idea of the body politic um, through kind of microbial science? In part, it's a personal story, and in part, it's a story about the ways in which our disciplines in the academy work. So... Um, I lived in Baltimore doing my graduate work. It's when all of this started, and I realized that a lot of the things I was reading about weren't matching the experiences I was having living in um, the neighborhood I was in in Baltimore. Mm. So as I kind of walked through the streets to school every day and and lived in kind of a black working class neighborhood, um, because class matters so much in America, but we don't talk about it, right? Mm. So um, I was we're the only white family on the street and very welcomed mm. right into the neighborhood. It's a kind of a Southern American thing. If you're on the block, you're on the block. Mm. Um, and there was a lot of things happening um, coming from the, the West that I had never lived in an urban environment. And I was learning all this stuff about critical security studies and war and mm. peace. And every time I'd walk home, things weren't matching. Mm. Or even more so the um, idea of how we keep ourselves secure. Mm. Um, and how we do that in my field through thinking about kind of discrete individual relationships when in reality it has more to do with um, if you think in terms of being on the block right mm. knowing everyone being able to make connections the young lady next door to me her mother had to work out of town so she was 16 and in charge of the whole family mm. and they had a dog and the dog was often sick and um, so we just forged friendships and alliances across the porches and that's the way the block itself became more secure as opposed to like putting up barbed wire fence Mm. or the kind of things you think in typical security terms in my field you'd protect and keep things out you actually want to bring them in and um, figure it out that way Mm. so when you're talking about immune systems and microbes our immune system is does that too Mm. right it actually brings in much more than it um, shoves out Mm. and it makes these really neat markers of non-self that then tell you hey this isn't you but we've let it in and we recognize it and it's okay Mm. so a lot of our understandings um, of our bodies I think Mm. and our politics that follow from them which is why the body politics a big piece of it right because we naturalize our politics through bodies Mm. Um, and in we can see through the colonial systems of violence we also rationalize violence mm. on particular bodies that we feel don't fit yeah, um, or aren't the right bodies to be in the polis. Mm. Right? So if we think in terms of that, and then I began thinking, why is it we use all these ideas in Western theory from 
two, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred years ago, right? Like mm. even longer than that, talking about bodies. Why don't we talk about bodies now and how we understand them? So that led to thinking through the microbiome, the gut microbiome of the human body and the immune system itself. Because mm. there's a lot of, um, and they're all male, right, mm. who, who talk a lot about immunity. There's mm. Derrida, there's Esposito, lots of interesting theorists, but I, they, none of them talk about real bodies. Mm. <laughs> so it's that moment when you're reading and you're like, yeah, it's great, but have you read anything about actual immunity? Yeah. Um, and why don't I do that? So that's mm. what I started, and that was really both my own experiences in my own body and then seeing what the discipline couldn't see and say and embarking on a different journey from there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it feels it feels like a really ambitious book reading through it over the last, over the last couple of weeks about how um, you seem really determined and I, and I think succeed in, in talking through these metaphors but in a way that refuses to let them only be metaphors, right? So the metaphors, you argue, are, are actually constitutive and generative of a certain kind of politics and a certain kind of being in the world. Yeah, we we think through metaphor. If mm. you think about a lot of the ways we understand kind of complex unseen processes, like how do we talk about love? Mm. Right, love's a journey. Um, and all of these become, they tend to become dead metaphors. Like we don't mm. realize we're using something else. A metaphor is using something else to talk about something else, right? Um, importing from different places. And also, if you think about them, so many of our metaphors are body-based. Mm. Right? We feel happy and we're up, sad and we're down. Um, our bodies are containers and we see our world that way. We walk in and out of rooms. We would see like walking into a valley or a meadow, we would say we walk into it. So we'd have a sense of space mm -hmm. that tends to mirror our body sense of space in and out. Um, so that makes the embodied and cognitive nature of the way we think even about um, our world through language is also very embodied, mm. right? And then that way, I tried to really focus on them being um, generative, mm. the metaphorogenesis of the way we think and how that can be used to begin to shift and change our politics. Mm. You know, as a scholar, you always find you have particular conversations within the academy, mm. but most of us have very distinct politics mm. and desires for different worlds. So for me, it was trying to find a balance of how I have both those conversations. Mm. So mm. the generative metaphor began to speak of a way um, in which we could think about the way we talk about the world actually creates it mm. and can change it. Um, and if we see the world as something valuable, magical, um, contaminated, creative, we'll treat it differently. If we don't see a tree as only paper, Right, And I think that these approaches um, in Western theory tend to be surprising to white folks, right? Uh, mm. And lots of other cultures and ways of thinking about the world have always incorporated this. So it's my intervention into kind of a particular kind of Western philosophy to try to get it to think, even to take itself more seriously, mm. right? And talk about the things that it, it's been missing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that was something that really resonated with me as well is, is how you were grappling with these ideas of the way that bodies are constituted and then the way that these body, our bodies are constituted differently and the way that we know our bodies differently is being linked to specific kinds of, of philosophy and specific kind of schools of thought. Um, and I wanted to just read a short extract from a piece by um, Aileen Morton Robison, who's a condomical woman um, and philosopher. Um, she wrote this earlier this year. We'll link to it on our Facebook page. It's from an article called Senses of Belonging, How Indigenous Sovereignty Unsettles White Australia. And I think in it, um, she's grappling with lots of similar ideas about subjectivity and about the constitution of bodies and how that's then linked to how we see ourselves in the world. She says, 
Our ontological relationship to land is a condition of our embodied subjectivity. The Indigenous body signifies our title to land and our death reintegrates our body with that of our mother, the earth. However, the state's legal regime privileges other practices and signs over our bodies. This is because underpinning this legal regime is the Western ontology in which the body is theorised as being separate from the earth and it has no bearing on the way subjectivities, identities and bodies are constituted. But this Indigenous ontology is not thereby erased. Indigenous subjectivity represents a dialectical unity between humans and the earth. It is a state of embodiment that continues to unsettle white Australia. Yeah, and sovereignty in political science, international relations, kind of broadly in Western theory would be connected to the land, but only through a political regime, mm. right? Through the state as a, a government and governmentality. Mm. So there's really, and that's one of the things that drove me to think differently about my work in the book was that why don't we talk about actual bodies? Mm. Right? I mean, and this is the feminist theory, post-colonial theory. We've been talking about bodies for a long time, but mm. other disciplines lag, mm. um, and so I kept thinking, how how can I get this very masculinist, for the most part, discipline to start to talk about bodies? Mm. Um, so in some ways, the metaphor and the body politic are a, a bit of a trick, mm. maybe, <laughs> like to bring up the, yeah. being just being able to bring up that conversation mm. and to have it in particular places where one would see the body only as a cipher or maybe as a particular kind of flow or even more importantly, like as dangerous, the mm. genocidaire, the the refugee, as they move across borders, being unsettling to the system of sovereignty mm. itself. Right. Mm. It's really interesting. I'm I'm thinking about a great piece that I read recently by Mbebe, who's a, um, a I think a Zambian writer called Necropolitics. Um, that's a really great piece where where he's kind of making this argument um, that sovereignty, that a kind of m meaningful understanding of sovereignty. Uh, is really about the ability to kill, you know, or the ability to, to um, allow to live, you know. Um, and that's an incredible piece. It's a really, yeah. It's really a great piece. Yeah. And, and one of the things, so the reason why thriving is in the title um, is that I'm, I was also trying to push back against this idea of um, sovereignty always is violence. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think about a more, it's, I mean, I guess you could call it positive biopolitics, mm. right? Which I think has is, is been pretty popular in quite a bit of the theoretical mm. writings coming out from, um, you know, following Foucault and the way that mm. he very presciently talked about how we might understand ourselves together. But um, I saw a lot of focus on death, mm. on body parts, right? I did earlier work on organ transplantation mm. and um, human trafficking. And I thought, what would happen if you tried to, like, well, if we take this as a kind of given, if we're going to be regulating life in particular ways, what are the ways in which we could begin to, um, and I think this relates mm. back to what we're speaking through the colonial violence, is what if the state thinks it works mm. based on what it thinks it sees, mm. right? And if we talk about the state as a person, right, which mm. is a big part of um, how we understand states with the capital S working in the international system, right um it thinks it it works because of economics it mm. thinks it works because of particular kind of regimes of law and international law but we all know that what's underneath that is actually a huge piece of it the gray market mm. the black market unpaid um, female labor the kind of things that support it that can't be seen so they think look we're succeeding you know great we pat ourselves on the back like this westphalian western regime mm. is is really mm. really kicking it and you think well actually under all of this 
is the the murder, the genocide, mm. the the racial politics in America, the building of so much American wealth on slavery, mm. all of which is enacted on bodies, right? Yeah, mm. and that's all on bodies. On yeah. um, and as we see in America, so much um, undervalued black labor still, mm. right? The football teams in America and the college football, especially where I'm at, you know, using young black bodies mm. to to make millions and millions mm. of dollars, but that's not being passed on to the communities. Mm. So that was a piece of the book was like, well, let's not let's say let's say what's actually happening and see if we can make that visible. Mm. Right. It's, I'm really interested in this idea um, of a kind of refusal of abstraction, which feels like a lot of a lot of what the book is doing. I haven't forgive me. I haven't actually read all of the book, but uh, but I think um, I'm really I guess this this kind of new materialist turn mm-hmm. in general, you know, a lot of a lot of what it seems to be grasping at is a kind of refusal to allow these kind of things that really are assemblages of bodies interacting with the world um, to be abstracted. And I I was thinking about the conversation we had at the Brisbane Free Uni reading group last night about Aileen Morton Robinson's piece and about the kind of unsettling of white Australia by claims about Indigenous sovereignty about that was linking to a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a UQ-based academic, Dr Chelsea Bond, who's another um, Indigenous academic, uh, who talks about this idea of locating... Um, a, a kind of references a set of surveys that were done in Australia uh, in the, the, I think, early 2000s, um, where they found that no matter where people were asked, no matter where geographically people um, were asked these questions... Uh, community members still located like real and uh, this is an inverted commas here real indigenous people always lived somewhere else Mm -hmm. so no matter and this doesn't matter how kind of remote you go this was still this idea that like the, the real aboriginal people live somewhere else and we were talking about how one of the things that um, that I think is really interesting is that I think lots of us do the same thing with colonialism and lots of us do the same thing with the state. So the state or colonialism, there are always things that kind of are happening somewhere else, you know, and this feels like a really integral part mm. of how international relations as a discipline works, right, is to say... It's always to the outside. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. and it's, it's always highly abstracted. Um, but a kind of abstraction that sort of allows itself to perform truth in really interesting ways. You know, it gets to be like, ah, if you don't believe in the... the yeah, but this is just realism, right? You know, <laughs> this is just... this is The states are self-interested and if you think anything else, then you're just, you know, naive and... Yeah, if you think about the, the main the main theory in my field, getting to take the name realism, yeah. right? <laughs> which is really frustrating. So often the debates are set up like, well, you have to prove to us that you're real. Yeah. Because we already hold this title. Yeah. So you always feel like you're knocking at the door saying, is this real enough? Yeah. Do you yeah. think this is the right empirics? Am I yeah. counting the right things? So that's a frustrating piece of it too, right? Yeah. Sometimes those debates just have to be alighted and you yep. have to kind of do your thing over here. And if you build it, they will come kind of moment. Yeah. Where you let, all right, you think you're thinking about the real, but yeah. right in reality, it's very thin. It's a very thin and sad place that you're at. Mm. And we hope that we can kind of flesh it out, mm. right, to use that metaphor. Yeah. But then that, I feel like that's really interesting in conversation with what you were saying before around the idea of um, of kind of narrating the world and making it so. You know, this idea of like, well, if if people if people who understand themselves to be realist international relations scholars are telling themselves a particular set of stories about the way things work in the world and what reality is, to some extent that reality does exist. Then you know, it is performed and created and. Um, yeah, and you have if you have a if you hold a hammer, every problem you see is a nail. Yeah, kind of yeah. that old saying. Mm-hmm. And I think in some places it's easier to do than others, right? Mm-hmm. Like in places where you see, if you see injustice, if you are around that sort of thing, um, 
and you're pushed in your beliefs all the time, mm. it's easier for you to, to, I think, acknowledge and begin to accept new ideas of the real mm. as they come at you. But a lot of academics, right, move back mm. and forth between these really privileged spaces where mm. everything's fine, like birds are chirping, the grass is green, there's no climate <laughs> problems, there's no injustice, mm. except um, in small places we might mm. see are theoretical. Mm. So being pushed to, and I think in Alabama it's one of the places where you can see an internal Mm. colonialism there as well, right? The mm. regional issues are flipped there, right? The, our South is where you see a lot of, um, especially Alabama itself is toxic, right? Mm. Monsanto had one of their first plants there, and mm. Aniston, there's a really uh, wonderful scholar, Ellen Spears, who did a very long, detailed project on, like, looking at the, the land and the toxicity and how that was pushed onto mm. African-American communities, and we still have places in Alabama that are too poisoned to eat the fish, you'll die, Mm-hmm. Um, you'll you'll die from eating the vegetables, um, so there's th- that sort of thing that we see, and all mm. of that came from other states, right? Mm. Like Texas dumps all its toxic waste. We have intense chicken farming and slaughtering. It's the mm. biggest open pit for chicken guts mm. in the U.S. I think like wow. 22 million. Didn't know those existed. Pounds <laughs> of <laughs> so like there's kind of there's. You know, violence against all sorts of bodies, mm. and so, and that's not as easy to see, say, in Berkeley, if you're yeah. you know, teaching. Yeah. Um, it's there, but I think in that too, I think that's where resistance come from. Like mm. our progressive southern cities, especially, are really mm. pushing back. And I think, mm. um, yeah, that with abstraction, of course, the biggest kind of abstraction often is is climate change or global mm. warming. Uh, and in fact, this winter in Brisbane, it's been really warm, and it's been. I think for a lot of people, the first time they've felt on their bodies what is happening supposedly out there. Um, So, Nat, I think you had um, a question. Yeah, there's kind of two central metaphors in your book, Stephanie. I'd like to, I hope we get time to talk about uh, both of them, but I thought first we could just talk about this idea of, of the lively vessel, which is sort of understanding the human body as an assemblage of a whole heap of non-human bodies, really. Um, you talk about nested sets of permeable bodies, and that's right. just one of my favourite phrases ever. <laughs> so can you talk us through that understanding of the body and how that might enable a different kind of politics? Right. I mean, a piece of it was trying to create my own metaphors of mm. thinking through. Um, and so the lively vessel came from trying to resurrect almost an, an older feeling of a material politics um, where we think about not ourselves as subjects, but as kind of carriers or holders of other other beings. So the the piece of the um, story with the bacteria and the, the microbes and et cetera, the human uh, microbiome is all about, we're not actually that human genetically. Mm. Mm. And we carry along a lot of things with us, right? Yeah, it's like 90% other DNA, right? Yeah, is that, yeah, is that yeah. I mean, yeah. we're, we're 10% human genetically. So if we, if we think about the fact that how we create ourselves as human is very much a social construction, mm. right? And being a species is also relatively new. And there's a great scholar named Ed Cohen, he's at Rutgers, who talks about why did we think this was a good way to talk about ourselves, right? And it separates us from all different all other kinds of species, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, we often don't even think of ourselves as animals. And a, mm. a very a very political statement can often just be as simple as saying human animals and non-human animals. Mm. I often get a lot of pushback just saying that, right? <laughs> or I ask my, you know, first-year student, like, so are we animals? And they're like, no, we're human. Mm. I think, oh, well, like, remember mammals when you learned about that stuff as a kid? Like, mm. we... 
have live young, we mm-hmm. nurse them, you know, we have hair, we're warm-blooded. So it's interesting to know that that itself is something very political mm-hmm. that we don't think about, right? So if we if we think our, of ourselves as kind of human in the sense that we would encompass mm-hmm. and always have other communities, um, commensal bacteria, the um, one of them, right, is what helps us digest carbohydrates. So without this particular um, microbe, without this bacteria, we wouldn't be able to digest about 35% of what we eat. Mm-hmm. And those are called commensal bacteria, right? Mm-hmm. So they, um, they come and eat at the table with us, right? And so they help us out. Mm-hmm. So we would not be able to get all the nutrition that we do without these um, little critters working along with us. And so they get dinner, and so do we. Um, and we often think of ourselves as these subjects. We're like, well, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. And, um, and this idea of the body can't sustain that. Right, yeah. it can't con- sustain that liberal individual that does everything on its own because it, at this level, and really interesting things with viruses and the way mm. in which we've co-evolved, um, we wouldn't do a lot of things and wouldn't be able to do a lot of things without the mm. tiny messmates mm. that inhabit us. Yeah, yeah. It, it's one of the things I was I was thinking about reading your book is because um, you talk a bit about um, sort of Brito- uh, Latour's idea of of actants and the idea that the more than human world also acts and, and has agency and expresses agency and that I suppose in a way our bodies and, and what we think of as ourselves are expressions of the agency of a whole heap of non-human others, um, organic and inorganic, which then got me thinking like how much of what I do is me and how much of it is the bacteria that is also me um, and how much of, yeah, like, like yeah, we, there's been a lot of research into to that. Think about that, right? Yeah, it, it disturbs this idea of the will. Right, this kind of Kantian idea of the will that we have that that we would um, see something and move our arm toward it. Right, mm-hmm. it's actually this Spinozist, much more complex, and that the the world kind of sees us and we move our arm toward it. You know, mm. that that sort of reversal of how we would see agency yeah. and struggling to find the language to be able to talk about that. Right, because mm-hmm. there there were there were quite a few articles a few years ago about how people were afraid that like well are the bacteria driving the bus? Like, yeah, <laughs> I think one of the Robert Krolwich writes, um, "Am I some kind of luxury cruise liner for microbes?" Right, like mm-hmm. what is it I'm actually doing? And even if you think about your bodily processes, like what happens when you're hungry? Mm. Right, you make markedly different decisions when you're hungry. <laughs> Research tells us, mm. and our own like empirical evidence of our lives. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. it's a mm. terrible decision when I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So what do you what do you make of the current um, sort of popular panic about antimicrobial resistance and the um, development of superbugs and so forth? Well, that's where metaphors become really important. Yeah. Right? So a piece of the book talks about war metaphors. Mm. And we really mm. see, we see our relationship with microbes as one of kind of defense and, you know, intrusion. Mm. And that with that... Um, we also have started what becomes a superbug, right? Because mm. we're looking at it in that. We're not looking at it as in we live with these things and we have to understand them. So our constant use of Perel and mm. all kinds of mm. antimicrobial are actually doing the wrong thing. So, uh, Stephanie, I actually wanted to ask you, uh, so in some of your previous work, and um, I've, I read Planet Politics, um, a manifesto from the end of IR, um, you talk a lot about, about um, planet politics and how IR has kind of avoided the question of the planet. Mm. Um, so just a quote from that manifesto um, is, international relations has failed because the planet does not match and cannot hmm. be clearly seen by its institutional and disciplinary frameworks. 
Institutionally and legally, it is organised around managed anarchy of nation states, not the collective human interaction with the biosphere. So that seems to be um, kind of a, almost a critique of IR from the other end of the scaling debate, that it's the mm. focus is too small and doesn't get to that big planetary picture. So I'm interested in how you kind of scale, how you make a bodily focused jibe with planet politics. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question because what I realised in my new work and especially after writing planet politics with my amazingly talented co-authors um, is that we have a problem of thinking about the very small and the very large at the same time, which yeah. is what the which is what the planet is demanding of us in a way, right? Um, so, if you think about how we usually understand scale, it's this kind of smooth capitalist flow where you could go from big to small, small to big. Mm. If you remember seeing as a kid, there was this really popular um, movie that was focused on the back of someone's hand at a picnic. Right, and then it slowly zooms and zooms and you end up at the other side of the universe. Yeah. So there's this idea we have of kind of time and space and temporality being um, controlled by these easily accessed and mm. zoomable spaces, right? Mm -hmm. And the state itself is a form of temporal, spatial understanding. And if you look at the work of many people in um, thinking about Western nationalism, right, that the idea that the state has always existed to the back of us and will always mm. exist at the front of us is an interesting uh, and very cultural way of understanding both time, right, and it's connected mm. to our spatial um, creations mm. in it. Even um, like um, the act of cartography is one of the earliest sort of acts of colonial power of putting things right. on maps. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, from simply from a point of view, right, thinking about the weird sphere we're on that's spinning through space and spinning itself that we would have an up and a down and a top and a bottom. Mm, yeah. So we already have these explicitly mm. kind of moral ways of which saying, like, well, I'm on top, right? The northern mm. hemisphere's on top. <coughs> well, um, there's a great map. And someone told me yesterday it was drawn by a teenager that says um, Australia no longer down under, right? So the upside down map, which mm. when I show to, of course, my northern hemisphere students are like, it's all wrong. I don't understand it. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's yeah. a saying, I think it was about New Zealand, but um, <laughs> probably applies to us as well, um, that it's at the ass end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And if you think about the sizes involved, too, um, people really misunderstand Africa, right? Mm. In part because of the the map as we have it, the Mercator map is for mm. sailing, right? So it really kind of accentuates things in different ways and is good for what it does, right? Which is one of the things we can always remember, right? The map is not the world. Mm. Um, and sometimes things have will serve a purpose and they serve that purpose very well. But if you try to if you try to do that somewhere else, right, it doesn't mm. work as well. Mm. So actually all of the continents could fit in Africa. Mm. Right? Mm. Um, and people tend to think of Africa as a country, as if it's not mm. the <laughs> biggest one of the biggest continents. Mm. I just recently saw a picture of everything that would fit into Australia as well. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot. It's, it's a big. lot, like yeah. all of Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. Mm. But, um, yeah, so, so can we talk a little bit more about that idea of, so if we are understanding, and I, and I think part of the way that you, that, that's I guess that scalar idea kind of gets disrupted, but also maybe how we move from the really embodied sense of of the lively vessel, the nested assemblage, um, with permeable boundaries, is that then by using this idea of the body politic. So if the body politic is then made up, right, of all of those nested, so it is a nesting of the nested uh, assemblage. A bunch of the lively vessels come together into yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. The question that um, that I think Latour asks is what is the what is the assembly of the assemblages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that is this rethought idea of the state. And how might that 
then interact with planetary politics? Well, I think one of the things I'm working on with Anthony Burke, who's one of the co-authors, is we're playing with the notion of how we might um, work with institutions that we have internationally mm. and rethinking. So something like um, Environmental Security Council, mm. right, that would work differently from the Security Council we have now, the explicitly political one with all the problems wrapped up in the time that it was created, right, the veto powers, but that one would look... and. In my new work, I'm trying to think about kind of eco eco zones, eco tones, right? The in between places. So, how might we organize the world, thinking planetarily, maybe into you know eco zones, mm. different? And there's about you know like probably seven big ones. And then from in that, what kind of representation do you think you would need? Mm. Right. So you'd kind of you'd think from the top and the bottom at the same time. Mm. Right? You'd say, oh well, we have these institutions that need to be international because we have to have collaboration and cooperation right especially from our biggest carbon producers mm. china and the u.s and india but at the same time we also need to go down to the local level and figure out what's needed so you would have indigenous representation you'd have scientific representation you'd have representation from the states that were in it and the other kind of fun piece of it to think through i think following um Dreisick did early work about like trees mm. should trees be in the u.n mm. right um and Latour's idea of if we were to have a global demos and we wanted to widen it, like how would we do that? We couldn't even fit in it. Mm. Right? Um, so sometimes yeah. like a point in all directions is no point at all. So one would have to figure out how you could speak of it and how you could meaningfully break it up. Mm. Right? I think the early um, awkward attempts were the glocal, yeah, mm. if you remember. Um, so in that, if we start to... And I think it's a it's a Haraway point too, right? The mm. Donna Haraway, wonderful feminist theorist, says we can care about one thing, right? And if kind of everyone cares about one thing, we'll probably get a little farther. Mm. So in some ways, you can break it up in that terms. Like, we don't. Not everyone has to care about everything, but we could take a moment to figure out what could matter, mm. right? Um, and do that, right? Scientists mm. care for one frog and communities care for one particular thing we talked about rivers and rights mm. right like mm. those kind of small on the ground well if we can talk about um you know non-human primates having particular kinds of rights we begin to extend the way in which we build community right rather than being based on exclusion being based on this idea of um rather than just diversity or multiculturalism, right? That's a sense of really deep plurality. Mm. And where pluralism really makes a difference, right, for all of us is that you don't just tolerate. You don't say, like, well, we should all be diverse and it's great that you're doing your thing, but please stay on your side of the, you know, yard. And mm. I don't want to hear your music particularly. Please don't be too loud and bother me because we're all discreet. No, we would protect other people's needs and their, mm. um, w like our own, mm. right? Like... I may not be LGBTQ, right? But I would protect the rights of those people as if mm. it were just as important to me as my own. Mm. That's plurality, right? Yeah. As opposed to thinking kind of a weak uh, liberal multiculturalism where we all just tolerate each other as long mm. as we don't get in each other's way too much. Mm. As opposed to this deeper idea, which using the bacteria and microbes, right? That you, you can't get out of it. Mm. If you were to make yourself aseptic, you wouldn't you wouldn't be well mm. that's right <laughs> yeah <laughs> and in the scientific the idea of the contaminated state the aseptic state that i play with the petri dish will always die from the inside 
right? Mm. If it's isolated mm. bacterial communities left without any flow from the edges and kind of from the liminal life that comes in and out, it will die from the middle. Mm. So if you think about a lot of our current politics right now, it looks a lot like rot at the center, mm. right? yeah. a kind of death that can't accept difference and the wall building rhetoric mm. right now yeah. in the U.S., right? We, pro- we know that walls don't work. Right, and never have. So are we wanting to keep certain people in or certain people out? Mm. And ultimately, those always fail. Mm. Right, And at the level of the body, we can see why. Mm. Yeah. Right, Our skin is permeable. Yeah. Mm. But I, I think one of the interesting things about, I mean, there's so many interesting things about that, but, but the, the Petri dish um, metaphor reminded me that the part of what you talk about in your book is how even understanding um, microbes as part of communities is still like kind of a radical approach within science, that, that the way that we've... Um, sought to understand, yeah, the effect on mi- of microbes on on humans and on the environment and on the non-human world has been through trying to isolate them because, again, that's just reflecting our particular Western ontology as seeking to break things into their smallest constituent parts and understand them as being separate from other things um, when really that's just... It's, it's not actually going to give us a whole heap of high-quality knowledge because that's actually not how microbes interact in the world, nor is it how we interact in the world. Yeah, that that's the kind of funnest part about all of this is the bacterial bucket brigades, right? Is that you don't understand an individual bacteria through its what it does. <coughs> it does something and then works with the other mm. communities. So, yeah, we have a sense of a deep way of being in a community without... Um, being able to separate ourselves from Mm. it, I think, which is a very powerful notion with thinking through how many of our most pernicious ideas of community, especially in the (coughs) United States, and I think this follows to other settler (coughs) is that we do all this stuff alone. Yeah. That that we would somehow, you know, the rhetoric around, especially the very wealthy in the U.S., is that they did it themselves. Mm. Mm. Right. When we know for a fact that there's been a lot of privilege involved mm. and this goes institutionally to to family you know mm. we know the things that make a person persist and do well is mm. a community around them mm. i'm interested in like how you incorporate kind of yeah those existing power inequalities into theories like this because um yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about, particularly in terms of climate change, obviously there's a massive disparity between, you know, and global emissions targets are often critiqued because they seem to impose a burden on mm. um, developing countries who were never given that, you know, that Western countries became rich because they were able to massively exploit mm. fossil fuels and, and um, produce heaps of emissions. And now they're sort of asking countries who um, are, like, way on the other end of that mm. to, to not kind of do the same thing for the sake of the planet and it seems to sort of let them off the hook in a way mm. because they're already in like that they've already made it so mm. wondering how that kind of how do you yeah how does a planetary politics or um notions of plurality kind of work with those existing inequalities and in, um yeah in power well the northern and western part of the world would have to give up much of its consumption yeah. mm. much of its belief in kind of a constantly infinitely expanding progressive economic system mm-hmm. Right, as well as many other things. So I think this this can be related to us at the bodily level too. It, one of the things that said in the earlier recording mm. from the protest last night is you weaponize your privilege. Mm. Right? Um, a war metaphor there too, right? Mm. Like, but it's particularly interesting to think about we, we might have to give up things, mm. right? And I think one of the things I have a good friend who kind of writes in historical sociology and he's like I don't like your work because you're not just telling me that metaphorically it's going to be dirty and messy it's like that's real 
Mm. Right. We're all going to have to kind of deal with a future that's going to be markedly different. Even mm. within our own lifetimes, we, we would kind of assume a trajectory of a particular kind. Mm. But in fact, those of us who have been consuming so much of the world's resources have to stop. Mm-hmm. And that means giving up the way in which we understand ourselves to be beings in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So I've been playing a lot with the post-human mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a way that tries to say, listen, if we, especially if we think through, like a good example I think is if you think about animals, right, and violence against animals or meat-eating, um, being able to cross species lines and have a kind of ethic mm-hmm. of care Mm-hmm. will also cross cultural lines, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like if we say these things are important, like biomes are important or animals are important, non-human animals are important, we would give up on all the other things, right? It would actually make it clearer to us the ways in which we're connected, right? Which for a lot of um, my supervisor, Sipa Grovegi at um, Johns Hopkins often said, he's from Guinea and his um, family cared for the chimpanzees Mm. and a long history that comes from a very wonderful story about a chimpanzee mom saving a baby in a fire and he said it was always very offensive to them when you know white folks would come in and be like this is how you do conservation Mm. and they're like yeah we we kind of got that figured out we've been Mm. doing it a while (laughs) so that's the idea of the scale thing too is one Mm. would have to be able to intervene with as opposed mm. to intervene for yeah. right just a little shift of a word often can change the ethos of of what you might be doing mm. um, no longer putting your word down and sure. making it work mm. We've been speaking on the show a lot over the past couple of weeks about the kind of more than human world and assemblages. Um, spoke a little bit about some of Eduardo Cohn's work on, uh, you know, more on the mm. like how forests think and what it means to be a, be yeah, a, jag- a jaguar yeah. in the forest. Um, and some of these kind of like the ways that these might link to people like Donna Haraway and these theories of, of kind of more than humanness mm. and cyborgness. Um, but I think what, one of the things we also wanted to do on the show today was to to kind of link these conversations that I think are really um, vital in mm. all of the meanings of that term um, to the kind of like space that we're sitting in now in Brisbane, in Australia, in the settler colonial state um, that we live in, which is this space of deep mourning. And it's a mm. space in which the body has been this kind of site of, I mean, and the body has always been the site of colonialism and decolonialism. It's, it's always, you know, it's always in our bodies that these, these struggles take place. Um, but so I guess like maybe I'm interested in finding some ways to think through you know, what's going on in settler colonial Australia through these kind of um, ideas of the body politic. Like, what is a settler colonial body politic? And how do those kind of... When we're talking about this this kind of ethics of care and these relational um, kind of modes of understanding being in the world that you've, you've been speaking about, Stephanie... I'm really interested in what that, what does that mean in these spaces of trauma? And what does that mean in these spaces of intergenerational trauma, of the legacies of colonialism? Um, you know, yeah, how, how, how do we figure this all out? Yeah, I think there's a few things for that. And one of it is uh, white, white folks could shut up, right, and, like, step back a little. Mm. Um, and so I think a big piece of what trying to think through from the international to the local would be very much um, finding a way in what, which one could support mm. the different voices and the mm. ways in which one could imagine a body politic. Um, even through language, I had just seen um, Stephen Mukey at a conference talking about the, and some of the readings we had from him during the workshop is about there's no to be verb in other languages, right? So the idea of ontology mm. then is very much different if mm. we don't have a way of 
saying I am, that the way you talk is always relationally or through what you're doing. Mm. In your language itself, then we have an interesting way in which we could we could talk metaphors mm. of life and action, kind of relational action at that level. Mm. So I think in some ways we um, getting out of the way, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that means what that means politically, I think, is a more complex question. But what it means academically would be to make sure one doesn't take up space that could be. Um, welcoming to other ways of thinking mm-hmm. indigenous scholars uh, women scholars and and that so looking at specifically at hiring practices mm. um, how we would increase representation of different voices within the academy <coughs> you know in the states mm. very few african-american full professors in my field international relations i think there's seven full women professors wow. who are international relations so you think about a huge field like that with thousands of people who come to our conference and there's very few women at the top position um mm. Though I think the demographics are shifting. So I think just having space in the room itself. And and importantly, I think we tend to be really answer-oriented. You know, what mm. do you think? Like, we always mm. sit around and say, well, like, well, we've got, we need answers. Well, maybe we should step back and think about questions that could be asked differently. Mm. Right? That that's a real critical project unto itself. Mm. Right? That we, I, we don't know. Like, I don't know. We don't know what mm. kind of things might happen because mm. we've, we're not asking the questions we should. And a good example, say through this, um, to ground it a little, would be to say that the sovereign state itself, as we would see it in the Westphalian order, that's through colonialization, right, moved everywhere. It's a mm-hmm. model of time and space and politics, is a um, an answer to a particular kind of question of political violence that was happening in Europe, mm-hmm. right? That initiating the peace of Westphalia was about um, religious violence mm. and Europe's a big flat plain so there was lots of people kind of constantly fighting each other. We had the um, Reformation and Luther and lots of things happening that made a particular way of seeing oneself as attached to two sovereigns mm. right? problematic so very simply it was like whatever your king is, whatever your monarch is, is your religion. No more fighting. Mm. Because what was happening in those hundreds of years of war was not being able to choose between two. So Hobbes' work, right, the Leviathan, was very much about the ways in which we have a political question mm. and we answered it. And now we're taking that answer and we're saying this fits. Mm. Right. So if the model if the model comes to say Africa, where mm-hmm. there's a lot of, you know, intervention for humanitarian purposes, the idea that that the African states themselves are failing or communities. No, the model's failing. Mm. Right? The model works really well in some places, yeah. worked really well in Europe, yeah. but now we have different kinds of political problems. Mm. Um, and I think one of those is admitting the trauma and maybe even, especially in a kind of environmental sense, admitting the tragedy, mm. right? Taking a minute to feel sad, yeah. right? To, and knowing that the people who we've lost, um, our sons, um, the animals that have gone extinct, are not coming back mm. and maybe that space that different space of an affect mm. will lead us to ask different questions yeah i think that that makes me think a bit about um yeah the, the, the problem does lie in the way that we think about the state the westphalian kind of model of the sovereign state because it, it was set up as you say as, as a kind of rejection of any possibility of ontological pluralism that there is that for us to be coherent as as a body of people we need to have one shared fundamental way of seeing the world and it will be through this one particular um set of, of religious religious ideals and religious beliefs but it feels like to do um to do decolonial work what we need to find a way to do is is to sit with ontological pluralism and to think about how we can actually all be part of something 
where we don't all necessarily see the world the same way, where we don't necessarily have a shared understanding of the nature of reality. It seems like that is essential if if we are going to have any kind of thing post-settler colonialism, if that's possible. Yeah, and we tend to see the state, and I think capitalism too, more broadly as some kind of logical end to a particular process, right? Mm. Which is what Deleuze and Guattari and their work, you know, in that kind of 68 moment, late 60s, I think, which we could go back to, interestingly, to look at the kind of political things that were going on, would say, like, actually, the state isn't a natural end. Mm. In fact, so many of these other, what they would call nomad, you know, nomad cultures, push against that. The state mm. isn't natural. It's a kind of violence unto itself. Mm. Um, and we tend to not look at that ontological violence within the state, which mm. is a big part of we have to forget at the same time, right? And if you think about the genocides that have happened in the, in a, you know, Canada, U.S., and Australia, all of that has to be hidden in order to have this um, idea of internal sameness within mm. and difference without, right? Because mm. that difference always has to be pushed. And also the violence becomes war, Mm. Right, it becomes pushed to the outside as well, but we know that um, sameness in our own personal identities doesn't necessarily make us any less conflictual. Mm. Right, for those very reasons, mm. we are a lot of things, and we can change into different things. And for some of us, we might be negotiating various cultures all the time. Right, we, um, and that's, and you're absolutely right, Nat. Like you'd have to stop and think about maybe I should just be uncomfortable. Mm. here mm-hmm. right that's it's often a space i think as professors we put our students in right mm. we we push them to be uncomfortable because you can find different ways to think about the world in that space mm. um i always find it f- um interesting on that note of um sameness within and difference without to watch um the kind of reclaim australia rhetoric mm. about um you know you weren't born here you're not from here you get out kind of watch it break down when confronted with the fact of Indigenous Australians. Like, mm, uh, it just, it's a strange ontological moment. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to maybe if we could circle back to, I think, the second sort of central metaphor that I mentioned at the start of the show in your book, Stephanie, about um, the, this idea about the, the contaminated state is, is what you call it. Um, So I might just read a couple of little excerpts from your book, if that's not super embarrassing for you. Um, You talk about how uh, territory and bodily integrity are protected as natural and desired desired states of being, Um, and that the sovereign state and later the nation state is the territorial instantiation of the belief that security lies in eliminating conflict inside borders with homogeneity and the simultaneous creation of a dangerous and threatening outside, and that causes of contamination are identified and eliminated through aseptic politics like anti-immigration and sedition laws, constriction of free speech and assembly, and radical violence such as lynching and ethnic cleansing. And so you talk, but but what you do with this this idea is rather than, I think, try and like argue against notions of contamination um, as being part of the state, you use this idea of what we now understand parasites and the role of parasites in our bodies to actually argue that contamination is um, not only unavoidable, it's fundamentally necessary and, and we cannot survive without contamination. Yeah, it's a delicate chapter. Yeah, it really um, is. And it's I think dangerous. a lot of times I say, like, this ain't your daddy's biology Yeah, right, in some ways, because the, 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 the science that I'm using is very much kind of a a nomad science and a new science. The, mm. the metagenomics and the the rethinking of the immune system has been um, over the last, probably pretty intensely over the last 10 years, but previous to that, kind of immunization had become kind of in the back. We thought we had it all figured out. Mm. Right? We had our um, 
fixed it all, right? We've gotten rid of polio and we have particular ways in which we, um, you know, we pasteurize and we control things. And then I think the AIDS HIV mm-hmm. really um, b- unsettled. Of course, we don't have all of these viruses that we don't understand, um, mm-hmm. that we thought we had it controlled and things figured out. So in no way does the book try to say that the ways in which we, you know, use antibiotics, um, pasteurization, all the kinds of things that have kept us healthier and safer shouldn't continue, mm-hmm. right? It's it's not a Christian scientist reading of the way in which we might interact. But the idea that our immune systems, um, and in the West we have a lot of autoimmune problems, and one of the reasons we have a lot of autoimmune problems is because the body begins to attack itself. Mm-hmm. And we used to have, you know, co-evolved hookworms and whipworms that um, – they're co-evolved because they don't they don't breed within our bodies. So when you get them from the um, outside, you only have a few, mm. and then they get washed out when they die. So you're never in a state of um, it doesn't become pathogenic mm-hmm. as long as you're not constantly ingesting them, and that the body then attacks the worm rather than itself. Mm-hmm. And um, what I had read through the research was that the your intestine actually pieces on it look a lot like a worm, right. and when the body, I mean anthropomorphizing a bit I think Mm. but when the body gets bored and doesn't have these worms to deal with it kind of begins to attack itself and and if you if you think about that in terms of state politics kind of these problems with um, especially what what we would in air quotes here like homegrown terrorism yeah the problem of these things coming from within Mm. is very distressing and I think it's not just distressing for the violence but it's because it's already here Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. Um, and if things are already here we can't keep them out Mm-hmm. And at some level, I think this causes kind of a short out in our politics, right? Because you, the rhetoric around wall building and keeping out, well, what if they're already in, mm. right? Which is so much the case with our bodies too, right? Mm. That every E. coli, we all have E. coli, right? And that, but that E. coli in the wrong place will make you sick. Mm. Um, so there is that the older notion of the parasite right, which comes from the Greek, which is you, you sit at the table, mm. right, and that it's someone who comes from the outside, a guest, a dinner guest, right, from the Greek idea of bringing people in that would sit at your table, bring you news of the outside, and you would feed them mm-hmm. and give them a place to stay, and that's your payment. Like, you get all this news and new things and maybe a song or two and, mm. and some talk from where you hadn't been, and that you feed them and treat them well, and then they go on their way. So that idea of the parasite is very much different from the way in which it's become understood in politics now right Mm. with immigrants often being called pests right and that sort of and we come back to language i think in an interesting way here then we begin to have a kind of cleansing language Mm -hmm. right cone's work on the nuclear words around nuclear stuff is i think a really great way to think through too that we tend to have these really medical Mm. and clean terms so we're not you know we're not um killing people we're you know, doing surgical strikes, mm. right? So it takes away, it takes away the blood and the guts and the, you know, the problems mm. that you would have um, thinking through those kinds of radical politics of trying to get rid of contamination mm. when, um, as opposed to trying to think through. And this comes back, I guess, we could circle back to the beginning to these unseen parts of the state, mm. right? That in fact, um, and I play with the notion of the other thing is we, we're often parasites too, right? Mm. And if I, I say we're parasites all the way down. Yeah. And that you don't know when that's going to flip, right? You may actually be, think about yourself as a kid growing up, right? If you had kind of your typical upbringing, your parents did a lot for you, right? Mm. You probably, you can't, this isn't true for everyone, but you probably didn't work and you probably had clothes and mm. food. And if you didn't, we know that's a particular kind of problem as well, right? That we would look at through social institutions that we... um 
and that sometimes we give and sometimes we're there to take and it's about a reciprocity and bringing these to the surface and saying well uh, in Alabama a few years ago okay, get all the immigrants out we don't want them mm. and so all of the migrant workers were expelled and all of the crops rotted mm. so right? I think that's an interesting irony as well is that these bodies are performing the labor that keeps the economy running and mm. that no one else wants to do right and but the the story always is is like you're not needed you're not wanted and but, I think yeah. this is true with women's labor it's true with migrant labor <coughs> um, with all sorts of underneath mm. underneath in the university you know the kind of emotional labor of the female professor mm. you know I've talked about this with most of my female professor friends right we have young ladies and young men in our offices all the time and you know our male counterparts are like they never come and see me and if they could if they wanted to and we're like well why don't you think about why they're not mm. right and so that's a I think a big piece of it and maybe we can enact different ways of thinking in the the places where we're at right we don't necessarily have to think big all the time mm. Um, I'm Joe in the studio with uh, Anna and Nat and Stephanie this morning. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we, yeah, we've got a couple of minutes left. I actually wanted to ask um, before we wrapped up, um, we were we had some questions about about cyborgs because we've been talking about <laughs> cyborgs on the show a bit recently. So if if our bodies are um, kind of these assemblages of, of different um, beings. Uh, where does technology come into that? How does technology mediate that and, and contribute to that? Well, I think especially for the very small, we're already mediated by needing tools to see them, mm. right? So part of part of the argument was saying a new body politic is that it was just starting, like there were just microscopes when Hobbes mm. was writing, right? Mm. So they would just have a notion of this unseen place. So mm. I think technology is mediating our understanding of mm. the world, right? And that we can measure it and see it in a different way. And the fact that the body... Um, we can see more of the body hasn't made it any clearer, mm. right? Like blood is another interesting piece of it too. Like blood just doesn't do what we want it to do. It turns out blood isn't any different, mm. right? Like they keep, we have the one drop rule in US, right? That was about miscegenation and mm. um, crimes around marriage, mm. like, but blood isn't cooperating, right? So our bodies mm -hmm. don't cooperate in interesting ways. So coming back to how we might not cooperate. Mm -hmm. And if you add technology in, it becomes less threatening if we think about the way, I guess, if we think in Haraway terms again, kind of mm. more utopic, technology just becomes another thing that we can add, right? Like mm. becoming somewhat more silicon-based would make space travel easier, mm. um, and it wouldn't be as threatening. Right? Mm. Um, a lot of us always already are cyborgs, right? If depending on how yeah. you define that, totally. right? yeah. <laughs> I have a um, a friend who's getting contact lenses implanted in the eye right yeah. what does that mean yeah mm. um, if we've if we've done that uh, pig valves in your heart right mm. so mm. we kind of already aren't human and so the notion that we never were mm. right we never were modern modern nor were we ever human mm. i think it makes the idea of political change maybe easier mm. um yeah i i think one of the challenging things that that you discuss with um yeah, a, a lot of depth in your book, which so people should just read it. But um, is is how that like there is this tension though in saying that like we were never human because of course there are some of us um, who are still not allowed to be human. You know, we um, we can see that um, you know th this is part of the colonial project is is to continue to render um, render first peoples as being less than human, as being other, so that they can be be killed with with relative impunity. We see it also in the way that Australian treats asylum seekers and refugees 
um, the, these persistent acts of dehumanization. So there's a, there's kind of it's 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 an uneasy space then to say, oh, we we were never human because it feels almost like. I don't know. Let, let. Well, I think the important thing to remember is a liberal rights regime would then intervene on that and say, like, well, we can make you human, mm. right? Which basically just moves a line. Mm. Right? It just says, well, you were once not human. We'll go ahead and extend that to you mm. as if you were asking and you could be, you could have this. Like, okay, mm-hmm. well, we'll make you human now. Mm. But I think rethinking the fact that we never have been might lead us to a place where we could say, you know, we're not, we're fundamentally redoing mm. at what, I mean, if we want to call it ontologically at some level. Yeah. yeah. Right? That we wouldn't be just saying, like, it's, you're you're a woman. You can have rights now. Yeah, like we've we've granted this to you. Um, it becomes a deeper, broader commitment to rethinking what political community means. And it, right? it reminds me a little bit of, um, or it's making me think a bit about um, Beth Povinelli and mm-hmm. uh, a particularly great book called The Cunning of Recognition, or that that's titled The Cunning of Recognition. And I think liberal rights discourse and recognition, and of course recognition is also a very loaded loaded term in Australian um, Indigenous politics at the moment for a variety of reasons. But that notion is is really important, right? Like, what does it mean to be recognised as human? Well, it also means to be not recognised as all of the other things that you always were and will continue to be. Mm. Um, And so, and it it means being coded in a particular way, made legible, um, which in and of itself is a kind of violence. Mm. So, you know, I feel like, yeah, there's maybe there's there's richness there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, no, no, like we know no book can do everything. Um, and this book is from a particular tradition with a particular trajectory mm. that hopes to, you know, be able to kind of complicate these notions, mm. right, and and find space within, especially within a particular discipline that tends to, like, IR is white supremacist mm. racism writ yeah. large, right? That's yeah. how it was built. It yeah. was built on all kinds of racist assemblages, right? The We Claim Genocide movement and mm. it's very was in the was very much about getting pushed back by white supremacists, yeah, right? Yeah. No, no, we don't talk about that. So the roots of IR itself, as you know, Bob Vitalis and a lot of really interesting scholars have Robbie Shilliam and people mm. have talked about, they're pushing back and saying, You were always supremacist, mm. right? And particular mm. kinds of understandings of the world which are dangerous to bodies of color mm. and to women and to non-human animals mm. Mm. And we can recognize that and yeah. like ask ask the different questions like yeah. we were talking about before yeah absolutely mm. um we are we are so close to the end of the show but <laughs> I, I wanted to i wanted to just mention a, a couple of lines that i drew from from the last little chapter of your book um where you say that, that i think it might be a nice way for us to um, wrap up the show with it with a few last thoughts from everyone maybe you talk about how lines of radical solidarity need to be created along all lines of difference um, and you also say that the communities built from lively vessels do not necessarily owe fealty to the state, or if they do, the state is a hybrid form of nested bodies relying on each other in newly recognised and radical ways. Simply put, a single political institution cannot handle the needs of the planet. Boom. Mm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Mic <Mike> drop. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Dr. Stephanie Fischel in the house. Yeah. <laughs> that sums it up nicely. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Um, it's a really beautiful book. Before we wrap up, I feel like we should do the, the kind of logical thing. Um, how do people get a copy of your book? It's a little late getting released. I've talked to my mm-hmm. editor. Um, it should be out this week, but you can go on to Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, I am listed in the biology part of Amazon, which hey. the press says there's no... Way to avoid. No way to avoid that because they don't do the coding. But I'm just waiting for some poor science student to be like, "What is this? <laughs> yeah. Doesn't make yeah. any sense." <laughs> awesome. Uh, thank you so much for coming thank on you the show. For the it's really wonderful. Yeah. In the morning. It's been fantastic. Oh, yeah.